This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is John Donaher. John is senior lecturer in law at National University of Ireland, Galway. His research focuses on moral and legal issues concerning technology including artificial intelligence and human enhancement. His new book is titled Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work. It's newly published with Harvard University Press. The future is a constant focus of our anxiety, and we're all familiar with the pressures that come distinctively from automation, the transformation by which tasks formerly assigned to humans come to be performed by machines. These days, the stakes seem to be higher, as technology now seems poised to render nearly all human labor obsolete. What lies in store for us, and for the flourishing and meaning of our lives, once technology has relieved humans of the need for work? In Automation and Utopia, John Donner explores the issues facing us as we face our own obsolescence. Is work necessary for a meaningful and fulfilled human life? Would a fully automated world render humans unfree? Do we risk enslavement to our technology? And might we mitigate the risk by becoming cyborgs? So there's a lot to talk about here. But let's begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, John. Hello, Bob. Nice to be here. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Great. Um, so before we get to talking about the book, which is really fabulous, um, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Sure. So uh, as listeners may have gathered from the bio, I am not a philosopher by background. So I'm a lawyer, I guess. I'm not, I've never practiced law. I'm a legal academic and I work in a law school and I teach law subjects. But I do spend most of my time thinking about philosophy and particularly the philosophy of technology. And I work in an area that's sometimes referred to as LC, or the ethical, legal, social, and implications of emerging technologies. So I've been writing about that and thinking about that topic for the past 10 years. I started out doing a lot of work on human enhancement technology and the ethical implications of that. I've shifted in the past four or five years to focusing on artificial intelligence and robotics, as many people have done. Started out in that enhancement debate, I've shifted over into discussing AI and robotics. I also maintain a a blog called Philosophical Disquisitions, where I really explore, I think, a much broader range of philosophical topics outside of my core research area. And that blog actually started largely as an exercise in philosophy of religion, which is one of my hobbies or outside interests. And I've, I've published a couple of papers in philosophy of religion over the years. I also run a, a podcast as part of that blog as well, which discusses, again, issues more to do with my core research interests to do with the ethical and social implications of emerging technologies. Yeah, so that's kind of my, roughly my background, yeah. Yeah, can I just ask a quick question? Do you have any thoughts about um, the ways in which um, technology, including blogs and things like, well, I don't know, podcasts, um, are changing the way that academics do their work? You seem to be very invested <laughs> uh, in 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 you know this sort of new 
ways in which we can disseminate our work. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, this is something that I get invited to talk about a lot to graduate students. And what I say to them every year when I'm asked to, it's kind of an annual tradition that I, I, I'm brought out to talk to the graduate students about blogging and podcasting. And what I say to them really is that I, I do it because I want to do it and I like doing it. I don't know if it has any positive impact on your academic career. You know, some people will argue that it detracts from the kinds of research that you should be doing or the kinds of publications that you should be focusing on. Um, I personally find it quite beneficial. I find it's a really good way of keeping up to date with the field and it gives me an excuse to explore kind of more diverse interests as well, which I feel I wouldn't get the chance to do if I was constantly focusing on publishing peer-reviewed articles. I, because I don't necessarily have to have like a high level of expertise to blog about something. At least that's that's how I feel about it. But I do think as well, like it, it does push your work towards a much broader audience if your blogging or podcasting gains any traction. And I guess I've been lucky. I've been doing it for a long time. I just had the tenth anniversary of my blog this month in December 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's it's <laughs> it's been reasonably popular over the years. So I think it has enabled my work and the things that I write about to receive a much broader audience than they would have received if I just focused on traditional academic publishing or traditional academic outreach. I see. I see. Well, fabulous. Um, so why don't we um, turn to the book then, which um, I will, I'll just say once again is which I found really, really uh, interesting. And you know, I'm just an interloper here. I don't work on uh, these issues, but um, I, I feel like I, I, I learned a whole lot. So um, let's begin with the with the big picture. Um, your book is one of the admirable things. Admirable things about the book is that it um, proceeds. Um, in a fairly uh, um, clear trajectory, in that it's it's there's four propositions. Uh, you you set out an itinerary early in the book, uh, in the first couple of pages actually, um, and then the the chapters just um, sort of are each de- you know, are devoted to advancing one of your four propositions. Um, could you lay out um, that big sort of roadmap uh, for the listeners before we get into? Um, uh, the particular um, uh, pieces of the journey? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the roadmap actually starts to some extent with the title of the book itself, which is Automation and Utopia. So the book is divided into two halves, the first half discussing automation and the second half discussing the idea of a techno-utopia. And then there are four propositions defended, two propositions per half of the book. So the first proposition that I defend in the book is that the automation of work is both possible and desirable. Because I argue that work is bad for a lot of people in many ways that they don't appreciate and that we should do what we can to hasten the automation of, of work. The second proposition is the automation of life more generally outside of work is a less positive thing and that there are important threats to human well-being, meaning and flourishing that are posed by the use of automating technologies. The third proposition then, shifting into the utopian discussion, is that you know one way to manage our relationship with technology to ensure human meaning and flourishing is to build something I call a, a cyborg utopia. But it's not clear how practical or utopian this would be. And I think there are a number of important ethical risks associated with pursuing the cyborg utopia. And then the fourth proposition is that another way in which to manage our relationship with technology to ensure human meaning and flourishing is to build a virtual utopia. And that this is more practical and more utopian than is commonly assumed. So those are the the four propositions that are defended in the book. Right, fabulous. Um, and even in just your laying them out, you can re- listeners will be able to uh, discern that the the book is fairly uh, neatly structured, just according to you know the one proposition to the next. So let's take it from the top. So the the book begins with the sentence: human obsolesc- human obsolesc- uh, obsolescence is imminent. So. Uh, um, can you tell us why that's the case? Yeah, look, I suppose I should make a confession at the outset, which is that that opening paragraph is intended to be a, a type of kind of rhetorical hyperbole. So it's, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to grab people's attention and get them interested in what I'm, uh, what the book is about. Um, but you know, I, I, well, it does a nice job of that. I do try to defend that claim in the remainder of the opening chapter. 
So I think it's pretty important to say a little bit about what I mean by that term obsolescence. You know, I don't mean that humanity is going to go extinct or anything like that, although I think some people might be worried about that that, prop, that possibility. What I really mean is that humans are becoming less and less useful in the world. And I think it's impossible to defend that claim in general for reasons that I might come back to in a moment, but I think it's possible to defend it by looking at specific domains of activity. And that's what I tried to do in that opening chapter. So I look at the history of human labor and human activity in a number of different domains, starting with agriculture and moving into manufacturing and the professions and so on. And I look at how the process of automation has taken hold in those different domains and how it has gradually pushed humans out of them. Okay, so I think agriculture and manufacturing are probably the two most obvious examples because we have the clearest historical evidence for significant amount of human displacement by machines in those domains. And people are probably familiar with some of the figures that are discussed in relation to agriculture because they've been banding around quite a lot in debates about automation in the past 10 years or so. But, you know, roughly speaking, most advanced economies, if you go back about 200 years, you're talking about over 50% of those economies being agriculture, at least, Uh, you know, other countries much higher. So the country that I'm from, Ireland, um, you would have been talking about the vast majority of people in the economy being employed in agriculture or agriculture-related industries as little as 100 years ago, whereas now that figure has gone down in most countries to below 5%. So the main reason for that is the consolidation of agricultural businesses into kind of large industrial-scale farms and also just a significant amount of automation and machine labor that has replaced the kind of seasonal migrant laborers that would typically have been employed in those enterprises. And manufacturing is another obvious example where historically you would have had something like the Ford motor car assembly line where you would have had individual humans working on particular tasks in manufacturing a car. And that has now all been replaced effectively by machines that do the assembly tasks. And then there are a few humans still left in those factories maintaining the machines and ensuring things run smoothly. But again, there's been a significant displacement of of human labor in that sector of the economy. And I argue in the opening chapter of the book that this trend line or this trend is continuing in other domains, such as the professions in, in medicine and law in government to some extent. So in in policing, I look at examples of automation in in policing. Eventually, I think it could happen in, and it is happening already to an extent, in bureaucratic agencies. And another example that I look at in the opening chapter is the sciences themselves, how there's increasing automation in scientific um, kind of experimentation and even Nowadays, very limited, but there's some initial initial studies where you have like fully robotized science scientists who construct their own theories and run their own experiments. So those are just you know, some of the illustrations, and I think these all give some flavor of the level of human obsolescence that I'm talking about or hinting at in that opening paragraph. Yeah, and is is it true in all of the cases? Um that the encroachment of technology and the automation of the tasks that were formerly uh, performed by human beings hasn't brought with it a need for um, human labor um, uh, in some other uh, uh, aspect of the overall endeavor? So, right, as you mentioned, right, so the, 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 the factories have become more um, automated, but that hasn't, you know, the displaced labor from the assembly lines hasn't created an equivalent um, number of new positions in maintaining the robots. Right. I mean, so there is there's some evidence to that effect, actually, in more recent times. So I, I cite a study by Darren Asimoglu, and I can't remember the name of the second person who authored the paper, something Restrepo is the surname, where they look at the impact of robotization in the American economy between 1990 and I think 2010. And they argued that for every one robot that you use in a workplace, 
you're displacing approximately six human workers, 6.2, I think is the figure from their paper. But then they run a different number of different scenarios in this, because even if you're replacing one worker or replacing workers in one workplace, it could be that you're opening up other kinds of job opportunities in other areas of the economy. So they model a number of different scenarios here, and they argue that it's still the case that for every robot that you use to replace a human worker, you're talking about, sorry, you're talking about displacing maybe three to five human workers. And so I think that 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 paper by then, that initial evidence on the impact of robotization on the economy does highlight something important in this debate about um, the technological displacement of human labor, which is that to some extent, I think when people debate this issue, they focus on the wrong thing, which is that they focus on how or whether it's the case that machines will replace human jobs in a sense or human workers. And I don't think that's necessarily the right way to think about it. Because what machines actually do is that they replace specific tasks that workers do as part of their jobs. And this is the case for the foreseeable future. The kinds of machines that we build are going to be good at doing specific tasks. Because we're building what people who work in AI would call narrow AI as opposed to general AI. We're, We're building machines that are good at solving one particular kind of problem or maybe a handful of very closely related problems like natural language processing, image recognition, building a specific component part of a car, something along those lines. Uh, We're not building general machine intelligence that can do lots of different jobs or tasks across many different domains or environments. So that means that we're never really going to, for the foreseeable future, we're not going to replace humans, so to speak. We're going to replace the tasks that humans used to perform uh, with machines. And so the question then becomes, if a robot takes over some of the tasks that I used to do as part of my job, will there be anything left for me to do? And it could be the case that there will be stuff that is left for humans to do, and they'll, their jobs will be redefined or their efforts will be redeployed. And so, so this phenomenon is something that gives a lot of economists hope when it comes to the future of work and automation is that they think we won't really ever fully replace humans in the workplace. What we'll do is we'll just redeploy the way in which human labor is used in the workplace. And in fact, there's a a name that's sometimes given to this um, error in thinking about automation. It's referred to as the Luddite fallacy, because the idea here is that the, the Luddites, who are these original protesters who used to smash machines in the early days of the Industrial Revolution in England, you know, they, they were ultimately wrong. And so far as machines haven't replaced human workers, we still we have you know, many humans still working in the economy today, probably more people at work today than have ever been at work in the past. So the, the fears of the Luddites haven't come true in the past 200 years. So it's unlikely that they're going to come true again in the future. Now, I mean, I think there are reasons why that is wrong, but that's roughly the the thing to to remember about debating or thinking about automation in the workplace is that machines replace specific tasks. They don't replace jobs or workers necessarily. Right, right, right. So um, I, I suppose that maybe many, but at least some listeners um, will hear the word obsolete um, as um, – uh, embedding a, a moral appraisal and not merely as an empirical uh, uh, matter, which is uh, the first chapter of the book. And as you go through um, the various industries where we've seen automation uh, displace uh, uh, the need for human labor, you know, these are really just empirical claims. You know, here's how agriculture has developed. Um, but you argue that um, not only is it possible um, to eliminate the need for human labor, um, maybe not all human labor, but mainly uh, most human labor. Um, you argue that even those, um, even for those who um, like their jobs, um, we got nonetheless to uh, hate that we need to work, right? So you have a chapter called Why You Should Hate Your Job. Um, and so you see the, um, the coming obsolescence as, uh, as you call it, an opportunity for optimism. Uh, could you explain that? Sure. I mean, one thing to say about this 
one reason why I go into the the desirability of automating human work is because I'm not a fatalist uh, when it comes to the future technological development of, of the workplace. So some people will argue that, you know, it's just a natural evolution of the economy that will tend towards an increased amount of automation and the replacement of human labor in the economy. And I think you know, there's an extent to which that's true insofar as it's baked into the capitalist profit model that you want to replace workers with machines because it's cheaper and more efficient and they don't strike and they don't get tired. And so there's a tendency to desire increased automation, but I don't think it's an inevitable march towards increased automation. So that's why I think it's important to get into the evaluative side of this as to whether it's actually a good thing and whether it's something that we should advocate for or um, pursue as part of kind of social policy. So that's just an initial point about this opening proposition in my book about the automation of work being both possible and desirable. So then why do I think it is a desirable thing? As you mentioned, I have this chapter called Why You Should Hate Your Job. Again, I must confess that's a a little bit of rhetorical hyperbole, which I try to defend at length. So roughly what what I argue in that chapter is that work has become structurally bad. So what do, what do I mean by that? I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this issue for quite a number of years, and I've actually written another couple of papers about the badness of work or promoting what I call an, an anti-work philosophy. And I, th- I think I've changed the way in which I defend the badness of work over the years, having thought about it in, in different ways and responding to some criticisms. So you know, one way in which you can argue that work is a bad thing is that you can focus on specific jobs or specific tasks that people do and argue that they are in some sense unpleasant or not conducive to good mental health or social well-being or they're not very well paid so forth. I refer to that as the contingency strategy for arguing for the badness of work insofar as it focuses on what I would refer to call the contingent properties of specific forms of work. And the problem with that way of arguing that work is bad is that it's never going to support a general anti-work philosophy or theory because what people will do is they'll say, it may well be true that specific jobs are bad, like, I don't know, working on an oil rig in the North Sea is a bad job. It's not very nice, but there are other kinds of work. So all you have to do is just push people towards the more pleasant and more desirable forms of work. Another way of arguing that work is bad would be to say that all forms of work are necessarily or inherently bad. But that also seems like it could be a a difficult case to make. And again, because it's probably the case that some people find their jobs quite pleasant and quite convenient and motivating, and they get a lot of self-actualization from them. Indeed, I suggest in that chapter that you mentioned that I myself find most of what I do as part of my job to be very motivating and self-actualizing. So what I've come up with instead of arguing that work is necessarily bad or just contingently bad is to focus on the structural dynamics of the labor market, particularly in advanced industrial economies. And what I argue is that the labor market is really settled into an equilibrium pattern that is bad for the majority of workers and is getting worse. And part of the reason why it's getting worse is because of the increased amount of automation or the increased use of technology in the workplace. And so I outline then five arguments for thinking that work is structurally bad. I mean, I can go into those in, in more detail if you'd like. Uh, I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that initial kind of framing of, of the argument. No, no. Could you? Um, the the framing is, is was is very good. Can can you run us through very quickly um, the sort of five arguments? Because I think that um, uh, they're really compelling. <laughs> um, so, uh, or at least give give us a summary of of which you think are the most important. Yeah, sure. What I'll do is I'll give a, like a high level summary of each of the five arguments, and I, I articulate these as as problems with the workplace nowadays. So the first problem is something I call the, the problem of dominating influence. 
So, you know, for philosophers, this will be a more familiar concept than it will be for other audiences. But what I say is that employment contracts, and actually more generally the state of being employed, give employers an unjust dominating power over the lives of workers. And this significantly undermines the freedom of workers. And so, you know, to the extent that you think freedom is a good thing, you should think work is a bad thing because it undermines freedom. And so what I'm appealing to here is the notion of freedom as non-domination as opposed to freedom as non-interference. Um, so that that that's the kind of freedom that I think is, is undermined or compromised by modern employment contracts. The second argument I make is that there's a problem of increased fissuring and precarity in the workplace. So these are kinds of economic jargon. Some people might be familiar with them. But roughly what that means is that instead of people working for you know large corporations that cater for them or look after them from the moment they enter the workforce when they're in their early 20s to the moment they retire, what's happening now is that most people are employed on short-term gig-like contracts and that this makes working life more pleasant and more stressful for many people. And this is actually one of the key areas where technology has made a big difference is that technology facilitates an increased amount of fissuring and precarity in the workforce. And people will be familiar with examples of this because you know companies like Uber or Deliveroo or um, I'm trying to think of other examples of this. These are the, those are the two that spring to mind immediately. A lot of these kind of platform-based employers are kind of clear illustrations of precarity in the workplace. So they're making work short-term and more precarious for people. The third problem that I discuss is the problem of distributive injustice. So what I mean here is that work is distributively unjust, and it's unjust in, in two different ways. One is that technology is polarizing the workforce in a way that there are a certain number of very highly paid and highly rewarded creative workers, and there are vast majority of people who are poorly paid and are employed in kind of precarious manual forms of work. And the benefits that people reap within the employment market are not necessarily or not obviously proportional to the effort or merit that they put into their jobs. The fourth problem that I discuss is the problem of temporal colonization. So what I mean here is that work colonizes our lives and that most of our mental and physical effort is taken up with preparing for, performing, or recovering from work. And and just to clarify this, it's it's not necessarily the case that people are spending all their time working. In fact, you can look at statistics that suggest that the amount of time that people have spent working since, let's say, the 1800s has gone down to the present day, although that's not true for all categories of workers. But what I mean here is that our lives are sort of so taken up with work and ensuring our success in the workplace. And it, it means that our leisure time isn't really proper leisure time because we can never really switch off. And again, this is something that's getting worse as a result of technology, I guess, particularly digital technology. That means we have this always on workplace. And then the final problem. You know, I saw a, um, can I just mention one quick, and um, yeah, sure, I wish I, I wish I, had had the uh, I wish I had at the sort of uh, the tip of my tongue the reference, but I, I saw recently by recently I mean about a year ago um, a some stats about um, hobbies in the United States that showed this really incredible um, decline in um, people not only doing things as hobbies um, but. Um, uh, a, a decline in, in people being able to give a description of some um, interest or um, uh, project that they pursue outside of their job. Yeah, which I'm, was striking to me, right? Yeah, like that. So I don't know that particular study or that example, but it, it sounds certainly consistent with other kinds of of evidence that I've I've looked at. I mean, like one of the things that influenced me a lot when I looked at that problem of Temporal Colonization was a book by a guy called David Frayne um, called The Refusal of Work. It's kind of partly a political book, but also partly an ethnography where he tries to follow people who 
refuse work, who try not to spend their lives working. And he, he has just lots of like interesting anecdotes within that book about people whose lives are so obsessed with work. And one of the examples that really stood out for me was he did some course in a local school with children who were between the ages of 10 and 12. And some 12-year-old boy did this kind of extracurricular course with him. And he asked him at the end of it, you know, what did he get out of it? And did he enjoy it? And the boy had said, It'll, you know, the, I did, but the, you know, the most important thing for me is that this course is going to look good on my CV at the end of the day. So, you know, we've got a, a 12-year-old boy who's worried about his employability already and is, is, is framing his education in those terms. And I mean, this is something that I feel a lot as a, an academic who teaches students that I feel like they are increasingly encouraged to view most of their education through the lens of employability. That's right. And so it looks even that the, the, the sort of um, uh, the, the, the infiltration has a sort of additional temporal dimension. It's not only that we spend more of our waking hours performing, recovering from, thinking about uh, work, but um, you know, we start thinking about employability much earlier in life. It becomes an occupation, <laughs> you know, a, a cognitive sort of um, uh, feature of our inventory uh, much earlier in life. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's, again, I think it's one of the feature of extended education as well. So where you've got, the, it's the case where a lot of people aren't really entering the workforce now until their late 20s, let's say, because they pass through so many phases of secondary and tertiary education. But an awful lot of that education, they're spent, they're, their main goal or their main focus throughout that period of time is on employability and working life at the end of it. So, I, I mean, so you're I think, sorry. Yeah, you're fifth. Yeah. Um, well, before I go on, I mean, I, I did mention I mentioned this to you in, a, in an email that I sent to you beforehand. But your your recent book, Overdoing Democracy, which is essentially about the the over politicization of our lives. I think this is one area where there's kind of a similarity between our books is that I think there's the kind of over focus on work in our lives or the over focus on employability and that it's it's seeped into every aspect of what we do and that's that's a negative thing we don't have space where we're free from concerns about work anymore and um, so yeah so the, the the fifth problem then which is actually kind of the, the most empirical point that i make even though all the arguments have some connection with empirical data, which is the, the problem of unhappiness and dissatisfaction, which is that most people are dissatisfied with their work and they think they could do better. And this makes it difficult to justify work, particularly in light of all the other problems with work that I, I mentioned previously. So the, the other four problems. And so, I mean, to support that argument, I do look at some survey data, which suggests that the a majority of workers around the world are dissatisfied or not engaged in the kinds of work that they perform. And that oftentimes there's an increased amount of competitiveness in the workplace. And you've got to wonder sometimes what is that competitiveness for, particularly if people aren't ultimately satisfied with what they do and that they're constantly thinking that they could be doing something better, something more worthwhile. So that's, that's the, the fifth problem. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, fabulous. So, um... We've got these sort of five separate and in some ways interlocking um, uh, arguments for, uh, you know, the, the, the overall badness of work or the badness of the need to work. Um, uh, but one might wonder, as I found myself wondering as I was working through those arguments, like, well, okay, but it could, the, could it be that the alternative, um, uh, the, the world without work, um, is is worse and um as i was you know thinking my own thoughts working through those five arguments i i i started 
thinking about an example that you yourself raise, which is the film WALL-E, which is a depiction of a automated world where um, uh, human labor, there's no need for human labor. um, And um, it's a light, it's a, it's a light film because it's in part for children, but um, it is, it depicts the world without the need for labor as sort of intrinsically dystopian. Uh, The, the, the people, the human beings seem um, not particularly happy. They, in fact, they just seem flat. They don't even seem unhappy. I mean, they just sort of seem um, certainly not flourishing uh, and kind of um, affectively um, blank. Um, so um, you reject the pessimistic view, though, of the world without work. Um uh, but you do want to take up the 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 concern, uh, and you devote a chapter to the concern that a world without work would be a world in which um, human flourishing is impossible. Can you tell us a little bit about how that uh, analysis runs? Yeah, so kind of partly to parallel the chapter on on work, where I outline five problems with work in the, in the modern world. I also have this chapter called giving techno-pessimism its due, where I look at five problems with the automation of life more generally. So not, it's not just our the work that we do, but the automation of everything that we do, in a sense. And I, yeah, I think Wally is the kind of apotheosis of this trend of, of automation, although apotheosis is probably not the correct word to use there, since it has a, sort of pos- a positive connotation. Um, but it is this... Yeah, this kind of extreme version of what an automated future would look like. So, yeah, for people who haven't seen it, the the humans in it effectively float around on these chairs all day. They've become grossly obese. They watch light entertainment through these screens that are attached to their chairs. They're fed fast food. They're also occasionally given, like, choices about how they want to feel today. You you can feel blue today. There's there's these features of of the environment. So they don't look like people who are flourishing. They just look like kind of stupefied, compliant slaves of the technology that they've created. And I think this highlights a a core concern that people have about automation. And I, I break this down into five separate problems in that chapter. And so, I mean, Again, I can give a, a high-level summary of those those, those problems, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe I just want to say one thing at the outset, which is just about the, the kind of theory of human flourishing that I use to support the, those arguments. Uh, I don't say anything hugely controversial here, but I say basically that the human flourishing consists of, of two things. One is a kind of subjective satisfaction with the life that you're living, and then the fact that the things that you do with your life have some kind of objective value or salience. Um, and that objective value can come in many different forms. But I guess classically, you're talking about people doing good things with their lives, you know, morally good things or contributing to human knowledge and understanding or contributing to, to society in, in some positive way. But I mean, there could be other objective goods as well that, we might come back to later on when we talk about my my utopian options. So the the five arguments that I look at for pessimism about technology, the first one is something I call the, the severance problem, which has to do with something that I think is an inherent feature of automating technologies is that they threaten to sever the link between human activity and the objective world. Because whenever you use an automating device, what you're doing is you're getting a bit of technology to do something that you would otherwise do. And this is a problem because in that theory of meaning, it's the connection between our subjective satisfaction and engagement with the world and the objective world that matters, or is one of the core features of what it means to live a meaningful and flourishing life. And if you sever the link between human activity and what happens in the world around them, you're undermining one of the key features of a meaningful and flourishing life. And I cash this out in terms of the value of achievement in the in the book. So I say that we want to achieve things with our lives through our act- activities, through our agency. We want to achieve things. 
and machines undermine achievement because they sever the link between our actions and what happens. The second argument that I look at in that chapter is something I call the the attention problem. So here I look at how technologies can manipulate and control our attention. So, you know, in some ways, attention is another core feature of the good life, because what we pay attention to dictates how subjectively satisfied or happy we are with our, our lives. And I think technology challenges our attention in two different ways. One is that it fragments our attention. So we we live nowadays in what people refer to as the attention economy, where you've got lots of services that are competing for our attention. Social media tries to grab our attention, ensure that we spend a lot of time clicking on things and retweeting them and liking them. And you know, basically the entire online economy is an attention economy. It's about grabbing eyeballs and holding on to them. But because there's so much competition for our attention, our attention is just increasingly fragmented. And most people that I've discussed this with find this to be an intuitive idea is that they, they feel themselves to be increasingly distracted and unable to focus on things. And so the, you know, the capacity to actually focus on things for a sustained period of time is important to human flourishing, and that's being undermined or compromised by technology. And this is actually one of the features of the Wally dystopia as well, I think, is that the way in which technology has captured or directed the attention of the humans in, in that future. But the, the other way in which it, it technology affects our attention is in the kinds of things that we end up paying attention to. And this could just be a temporary feature of the world, but I'm not sure it is a temporary feature, which is that the kinds of things that we pay a lot of attention to, particularly online, are not things that are necessarily conducive to our flourishing. And that the things that seem to the things that seem to capture most attention are things that are very emotionally extreme. So hatred and anger and outrage are really the things that seem to drive the most clicks, seem to capture the most eyeballs. And so if we have this really fragmented attention, but the things that we do latch onto and pay attention to periodically are things that are so kind of highly emotionally driven, I can't see how that is a recipe for human flourishing. So that's the, the second problem. The third problem is what I refer to as the opacity problem. So what I mean here is that an increased reliance on technology makes the world more opaque to human understanding and human reasoning. And so there's this uh, widely discussed problem when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence that people refer to is the explainability problem, which is that AI is a, a black box technology. A lot of what happens when machine learning algorithms solve some problem, it can be quite difficult to work out exactly how they solve this problem, to reverse engineer how they work. So you kind of end up with a situation where they do something, something happens in the world, and we don't fully understand why. And one of the things I argue in the book and I've actually argued at greater length in a, po- a post that I wrote on my blog since, is that what this means is that we kind of end up in a situation that's not dissimilar to kind of classic animistic re- religions where they used to perform these ritual rain dances, let's say, in the hope that they could control the weather. We uh, we end up in a with similar relationship with our technology in that you know, we, we press the button and we hope for the best, and we think everything will work out, but we don't really fully understand why. So uh, there's this danger of undermining human understanding of the world through increased use of technology. The fourth problem that I discuss has to do with autonomy again. So you know, issues of, of freedom. I just talk about the ways in which technology can be used to nudge or manipulate or control our behavior and also kind of undermine our traditional or historical defenses against interferences with our behavior because AI can operate on this kind of much faster scale and can be highly personalized and tied to you as an individual. So it's it's less easy to resist the kind of power that it has over your life. 
and it might have been you might have been able to resist kind of human agents who want to interfere with your behavior. And then the, the final problem, which is kind of a capstone on all of this, and they're all interconnected here, is that the net effect of all of this is that technology undermines our agency, our capacity to be moral agents in the world and reduces us actually to a status of, of moral patiency, where we become the passive recipients of the benefits of technology, but not the active agents of change and kind of positive contribution to our world. So um, uh, we, I want to make sure b- before we um, before we wrap up our, our conversation that we we get to um, the, the 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 positive image, uh, the, the the positive view of um, a workless utopia. And so, um, you know, it's important, I guess, to emphasize for the listeners that um, your argument. Um, is you know modest in that it's conditional. Um, the thought is not that um, automation will usher in a utopia. Um, the argument rather is that it's possible that if we um, manage our relationship with our technologies in the right way, that um, automation and human obsolescence uh, could be utopian. Um, and so um, you contrast for, you know, the, the, the latter uh, two, at least chapters of the book, these two images of uh, a utopian um, uh, worker, uh, workless world, um, one being what you call the virtual utopia and uh, the other uh, being, um, I'm sorry, one being the, the cyborg utopia and the other being a virtual utopia. And you... Uh, advocate for the latter, the virtual utopia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these two models? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would like to say before I talk about them in detail that there's a way in which I set up the second half of the book that I think is important, which is so at the end of discussing the the good and bad features of automation in the economy and of automation more life in life more generally, I argue that this poses a key kind of existential challenge for humanity, which is that humans historically have you know, achieved success in the world through using their their brains to solve problems through what I call cognitive dominance over the rest of the world, basically. And what has happened with the new wave of automating technologies like robotics and AI is that our cognitive dominance is increasingly threatened. And so we we face this fundamental choice, which is, you know, do we try to regain our cognitive dominance or do we try to cede or graciously accept that that we're no longer going to be the cognitively dominant species and do we step back and do something else? And so those two options then correspond roughly to the the two utopias. So the cyborg utopia means trying to retain our cognitive dominance by becoming more like the machines that are threatening to replace us. And the virtual utopia is graciously receding or retreating from the the cognitive dominance that we used to have and doing something else with our lives. Um, I, I should also maybe just throw in that I have a whole chapter on utopianism and what utopias are, and it, we don't have to get into that for the purposes of this conversation. I mean, there's only just one element from that chapter that I would like to emphasize, which is that when I talk about a utopia, what I don't have in mind is something like Thomas More's Utopia or Plato's Republic, where you have a very fixed and rigid blueprint for what the ideal society looks like, and then the goal is to just implement that utop- that blueprint, rather. Um, so what I argue for instead is a kind of horizontal model of utopianism, which is that a utopian existence or society is one which keeps the horizons of possibility open. It doesn't have a fixed, rigid blueprint that you're trying to implement. It's trying to maintain some kind of dynamism in human life while avoiding certain pitfalls to do with extreme violence for example which is often common in utopian political movements but so that's just one feature of that chapter that i wanted to emphasize because it does crop up in relation to the arguments that i defend in relation to the two utopias so if i talk first about the the cyborg utopia so you do the the definition here was inherent to what I previously said, which is that 
you're trying to make humans more like the machines that are replacing them. And there are a couple of different ways of doing this that I talk about in the book. You know, there are some philosophers like Andy Clark is probably the most prominent example who will say that humans have always been cyborgs because we've always been a technological species and always had these kind of fairly close, sometimes even symbiotic relationships with technology. So we are, in a sense, all cyborgs, natural-born cyborgs, to use his phrase. And maybe we're becoming more and more cyborg-like over time, but it's always been a feature of human existence. And I think you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. I suspect, though, like what most people have in mind when they think about cyborg, cyborgs or cyborgization is that they imagine effectively machine parts being grafted into human biology in some way. So like brain computer interfaces or brain chips uh, or neuroprosthetics or something along those lines where you're actually integrating some kinds of technology into human biology. So it's, it's not that you have an external device that you're have this very close relationship with like your, your smartphone or something. It's where you actually have something embedded into your biological systems. And I, I look at both of those possibilities in that, that chapter. And I explore, you know, would, this, would it be a utopian thing to do to increase the amount of cyborgization of the human species? And I think there are reasons to favor this idea. Again, you know, partly it's because we've been doing this all the time and we're just continuing down a path that we've already gone down. But I think one of the main reasons why you might favor it is it seems to avoid some of the threats to human agency and autonomy, at least on the face of it, that I discussed in the earlier chapter about techno-pessimism. And so it, it can conserve a lot of what we value about human existence already. This is kind of one of the ironies, I think, of the cyborg project is that it is, in some sense, a conservative project, at least when it comes to conserving values, conserving things that we currently care about. I also think, you know, it it allows us to experiment with the possible forms of existence. You can experiment with human biology and morphology through technology. And that's interesting from that utopian perspective, because you're expanding the horizons of possibility. Also, I mean, one of the, sorry, the originating document where the, the term cyborg was coined was a document written at the dawn of the space age which is about you know how to ensure human survival and travel in space, which is becoming more cyborg-like, was considered to be the key to this. And that's one of the things I discuss as well in the book, is how space exploration can be a, a, a utopian project. We can derive a lot of meaning and fulfillment from that. And becoming more cyborg-like is a way of making it more likely for us to do that, since we as a species are not biologically adapted to living in space. Uh, the um, there's a couple of other things that I discuss in, in that chapter as well that are maybe more philosophical, which have to do with ensuring a collective afterlife for humanity. So we uh, and the kind of existential robustness of life as a cyborg. So you're maybe less likely to die or be vulnerable to certain kinds of diseases. It doesn't mean that death is impossible and that you'll be immortal, but you could have a greatly extended lifespan, and this could be a good thing. And also that the, the lifespan of your offspring could be greatly extended, and this could be a good thing. To the extent that we embrace something like Samuel Scheffler's argument that the collective afterlife is a source of, of meaning or value for current civilization. So I, I discuss those possibilities as well in that, that chapter at the Cyborg Utopia. I mean, that said, I do think there are problems with the Cyborg Utopia. And... I mean, I suppose the main one I have, or let's maybe focus on two. First is just to do with the timelines involved. That There have been some promising developments in cyborg-like technologies over the years, and there are some you know, tantalizing possibilities out there nowadays. But it seems to me that the pace of development in robotics and AI is much faster than the pace of development in cyborgization. So in a sense, if our goal is to retain or regain our cognitive dominance against the machines that are replacing us, I worry that we will lose that race. I think that the developments in technology are are faster 
than the developments in cyber organization. Um, so that's one concern with it. I also think that it comes with a significant amount of risk as well to try to turn humanity into something other than it is. And that there's a risk of making the type of existence that we have too alien. And it's also just you know, practically difficult or risky to integrate technological systems with biological systems. And so these, these are reasons to be skeptical about the cyborg utopia. And there's actually maybe one other thing as well within, or one other fear about the cyborg utopia is that because it conserves a lot of what we already do, it doesn't have the same kinds of radical possibilities when it comes to a post-work utopia. In fact, one thing, one of the things I think will tend to happen if we pursue the cyborg path is that we'll actually just double down on many of the worst features of work in the modern world. Um, <laughs> right. In that, so, so instead of competing, let's say, on education for employability, we'll also now compete on cyber organization for employability. You know, so who, who can afford the best implants or the best upgrades? So that it'll become another thing that we get to compete for when it comes to employability. And that seems like a negative feature too. Right. And insofar, I guess, as the, as the, um, uh, the interventions and the enhancements are um, tightly um, indexed to or tethered to particular work tasks, this would be another instance of the sort of um, uh, the colonization of work into every aspect of our lives. Now there'll be features of our bodies that are specifically designed for some very particular work tasks, right? Yeah, actually, and this isn't something I discuss in the book, but the um, philosopher Robert Sparrow actually has an interesting couple of papers on this. If people are interested in it, um, he's written about human enhancement and the the enhanced rat race. Where he's, he focused specifically on this problem that there's a danger where uh, you get a certain kind of enhancement to your body or your mind, and it becomes obsolete as a result of other technological changes and. So this is going to be a bad thing in the long run for the human workforce. Right, right, right. Good. So um, tell us about the virtual utopia then. Yeah, so this is the, the final chapter of the book is to outline this virtual utopia. And you know, this is probably the, the trickiest part of the book. And um, sometimes I struggle to <laughs> explain this to people. Because when I argue for a virtual form of existence, I'm not necessarily arguing for an existence in which we, you know, we all plug into virtual reality headsets and live our lives inside computer games. Although it seems to be the case that many people who have read my book think that's what I am arguing for. And I, I would have hoped that that's not what I'm arguing for. So like one of the things I say at the start of that chapter is that, that there's two different ways of understanding what a virtual form of existence is. There's the stereotypical view, which is very much that notion of plugging into a VR headset and living inside the matrix. And there's something I call the counterintuitive view, which is that actually an awful lot of our current existence is already virtual. And so pursuing the, the virtual utopia means kind of doubling down on those features of our, of our current form of life that are virtual. So like, what do I mean by that? Well, I guess there are two things that I mean by that. One is that humans have always lived to an extent in artificially constructed niches or environments that we, you know, we don't live in the natural world, so to speak. We've always been kind of building up layers of artificiality between our way of life and what's happening around us. And another feature of what we do is that an awful lot of our social reality is sort of imaginary. We, we layer this set of concepts or constructions over the world. And that makes the a lot of what we perceive in, in terms of our social life, our roles, our jobs, our friends, our duties and obligations and so forth, it's not inherent in the physical world. It's something that we project onto it. As a, it's a kind of virtual reality anyway. So th there's a sense in, in which human life is already virtual. And this has led some people to argue that there's nothing to worry about when it comes to a, a virtual existence in the future, because we're all already living a virtual existence. So the Israeli kind of historian, futurist Yuval Noah Harari has argued for this in some of his work that, you know, 
most forms of human life at the moment are, in a sense, virtual reality games, and the future is just going to be more of them. Now, I don't really follow Harari all the way, but I think there's something right about what he's saying. Where I think he's wrong is that the the key difference between a, what I would call a, a truly virtual form of existence and what we current the kinds of lives that we currently live is that at the moment most people think that what they do is important or is connecting to reality in some way. They don't they don't experience their lives as virtual reality games, so to speak. So I think that in order to live a virtual life, you have to actually know or be aware that your life is a game and you've got to embrace that possibility. And so in that that chapter of the book, I use a, a theory of games and utopianism from Bernard Suits, which some people might be familiar with, this book he wrote back in the 70s called The Grasshopper, where he argued that the kind of highest ideal for human existence is, is a life of games, where games are kind of artificially constructed obstacles that we impose on our lives. I mean, he has a more technical definition where he says a game is anything that consists of a losery, or sorry, a pre-losery goal, a losery attitude, and a set of constitutive rules. So you have some kind of goal state, things that you're supposed to do to succeed in the game. You have a positive orientation towards the game is that you willingly embrace and accept the fact that this is a game. And you also have a set of constitutive rules that tell you how you ought to go about achieving the, the goal state. And these constitutive rules usually impose arbitrary obstacles to the most efficient way of achieving the end state. So, I mean, to use a very simple illustration of this, if you take a game like golf, let's say, you know, the, the losery goal there is to put a ball in a hole. And the most efficient way of doing that would probably be just to pick up the ball in your hand, walk down the fairway and you know, put it in the hole. But that's not how you play golf. Instead, golf, we impose all these arbitrary restrictions on how you should play the you should put the ball in the hole. You have to use certain clubs, you have to hit it through the air, and you have to you know, stroke it along the ground. So th- there are these constitutive rules that stipulate how you achieve the goal state in the game. And so the virtual utopia that I imagine in that last chapter is in part anyway about embracing games in human life. So if we reach a point where automated technologies can kind of do everything that we need them to do, they can provide an abundant form of life, they can cater to our basic needs, we will then be free to pursue these games. And what I tried to argue in that chapter is that this is a, a good thing because it enables or allows many forms of, of human flourishing and meaning, including allowing us to build up and retain our capacities of agency and autonomy and also human relations. It gives us a set of possibilities to explore because there's an infinite number of games you can potentially explore. So there's an expanding set of horizons. And so I think this is a a positive vision, contrary to what many people initially think, which is that it's somehow dystopian because it involves a retreat from the world. Right. Um, uh, but and let me just make sure that I've, I've understood this. So the the claim is not that we would um, sort of like in the Matrix, sort of hook up to a game and then spend our biological lives, um, you know, under the illusion that um, this this virtual game world is uh, you know the real world. It's that you know there would be a time to stop where we wouldn't be playing the game, we would be doing other other things. Is that right? Yeah, so there, I mean, there's two things to say there. One is that it's a very kind of important part of the argument that I make in, in that chapter that it's not an illusion or it's not... It, so in the Matrix, everyone's tricked into thinking that they're living an ordinary life when they're actually not. Right, right. So you know, in my vision, it's not that you're tricked into thinking that you're doing something other than what you're actually doing. It's that you positively embrace this virtual existence and that you're fully aware of it. I mean... More technically, in the, the chapter, I say that there's a knowledge condition on what counts as a virtual reality. You have to know that it is, in some sense, virtual. And but the the other point that you make is is absolutely correct, which is that I don't say that 
this kind of existence is it's not it's not that you spend your entire life playing the games it's there's lots of other things that you can do as well so like all the ordinary activities that make up a positive human life nowadays will still be available to you you know you can have friends you can have families you can enjoy the pleasures of the table you know wine and drink and sex and so forth all these things are still accessible to us in this utopia so it's not that we again live inside some computer simulation that's kind of not the vision of utopia of a virtual utopia that i'm I'm trying to defend although like just to be clear it's still possible that that being inside a computer simulation would be one way of manifesting this virtual utopia as well but it's not the only way or it's not that you have to be permanently plugged into the simulation so it's not like the the nausic experience machine let's say Right, right, right. So, you know, John, you've been you've been very generous with your time, and um, you know, there's still a lot to say, uh, uh, and and a lot of um, a lot of content uh, uh, in the book that uh, I will leave it to our listeners when they uh, rush out and and get a copy and start reading to um, to explore. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit about where you're off to next? What's your next project? Yeah, so I am working on a project. Call, which I'm calling axiological futurism, which is roughly exploring the future of human values. So the idea underlying that is that we know very well that human values have changed to some extent over time. You know, practices that we find abhorrent were common 100 years ago. Our, our ancestors found them perfectly normal. So the question is, like, is there any way of planning for future value shifts or value changes? And i trying to outline or defend a certain kind of model for thinking about that in a systematic and rigorous way that isn't just pure idle speculation. Let's say. Well, that sounds very uh, interesting. Um, I'll keep an eye out for, uh, for work along those lines from you. Um, but uh, for now, uh, John, uh, I want to thank you again for your time. Um, it's been really great to talk to you uh, about, about your book. That's great, Bob. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, fabulous. And um, thank you, listeners, for joining us today for our discussion of John Donaher's new book, Automation and Utopia, um, the subtitle of which is Human Flourishing in a World Without Work, which is just published by Harvard University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.